0: Hi, everyone. Yesterday, or Sunday, I spent the day at the Siever Autism Conference in New York City. This is an annual event, and this marked the 20th anniversary. There were many amazing presentations at the meeting, but I'm going to focus on two. The first was on gender differences, and the second on biomarkers, because of course, you can never hear too much about either one. The first amazing presentation came from Dr. David Skews, who traveled from the United Kingdom to talk about what happened to all the girls with autism. That was the title of his talk. As you know, this is a question of interest for the Autism Science Foundation, for me personally, and as well as some friends of the Autism Science Foundation who may be listening to this podcast. He started out his talk by pointing out that the sex ratio in males to females, as we all know, is 4 to 1. But the ratio of males to females in those with a higher IQ, say above 110, is 7 to 1, which makes autism in females more rare with a higher IQ. There was also a time when clinicians said they had never seen a case of Asperger's syndrome in girls. Don't flip out, I said there was a time. Certainly that's not the way it is anymore. As an example, he talked about some surveys where the increase in prevalence numbers came from a switch in terminology where those who were previously diagnosed with generalized developmental delay were then diagnosed with autism. These new cases came mostly from girls. It doesn't always work out that prevalence numbers are influenced by the way surveys are written, but in this case, it was. The importance of this is, do females with autism get misdiagnosed with generalized developmental delay more than boys, and could these girls have been the ones diagnosed with Asperger's 20 years ago? He referred to data through ALSPAC, or the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children. This is a study that collects data on thousands of individuals born around Bristol in the United Kingdom. This study includes about 14,500 people, and they have autism, but mostly they don't have autism. He used something called the Social and Communication Disorders Checklist to rate social communication skills in this group. A score of nine is generally used as a cutoff for concern. Those with autism have a score of 17, which means the higher the score, the more severe the deficits. Anyway, when he took everybody, not just those with autism, 10% of boys scored above a nine, but only 5% of girls. So just by their nature of being female, girls may have better social communication behavior. I can probably attest to that. With regards to autism, high verbal IQ in females with autism had lower scores or better social communication function. It seems like as IQ goes up, social communication deficits go down. Girls with a very high verbal IQ show less autism traits. There's also evidence from girls with autism with a normal IQ that they have problems learning emotional recognition, but they can use what they know to adapt. For boys, the pattern of emotional recognition is different. So is high verbal IQ protective? What are the genes associated with high verbal IQ? And do they help girls compensate for their autism tendencies? He also pointed out something that others have suggested, that the questions elicited by some of the traditional tests for autism are male biased. If you look at specific types of restricted and stereotyped interests, And instead of just saying restricted and stereotyped interest, but actually break it down by what they are, so things like memorizing facts, playing with objects, being obsessed with numbers or letters, or spinning things, these things are more common in boys, and this is what autism clinicians look at. Motor stereotypies tend to be similar between boys and girls. So the question is, are clinicians looking at the right things in repetitive behaviors in autism in girls? To address this, the Autism Science Foundation is funding a project by Dr. Claire Harrop at UNC to determine this and actually develop new stimuli that are more gender specific. Finally, unfortunately for girls with autism, they have a higher rate of emotional problems noticed by both doctors and teachers. Dr. Skews also made mention that schools don't always notice the social difficulties that parents report at home. It's incredibly frustrating to see a child struggle socially, but hear that she does her work at school, so there's really no problems there. This is a real issue. This could be because girls have social challenges, but yes, they can sit quietly and do their work and not give their teachers a problem. So instead of saying, she has no difficulties, teachers should ask, does she cause us any difficulties? So girls' compensation in those with normal to high IQ doesn't always equal protection against autism-related challenges and disabilities. You may have heard some of these facts before, and I know I've been spouting them constantly in previous podcasts. Dr. Skew argues that girls with normal ranged IQ are more socially motivated and more aware of what is lacking, and so they're more skilled in one-to-one interactions and also more likely to be misunderstood at initial presentation to services. He showed a video of a highly verbal and highly intelligent female with autism who attributed her challenge to developmental pressures, that people give boys more slack for their hyperactivity and social missteps, but not girls, and girls with higher IQ have to work harder to fit in. A view that is widespread in Europe is that there are more similarities between boys and girls in social communication functioning, but most girls with autism are being missed. Wouldn't it be great to have another way to diagnose autism in girls? Perhaps like a biomarker? Well, let's get on to the biomarkers talk. The reason why biomarkers, or biologically-based signals that detect autism, is important is because autism is so variable. To tell you something you already know, people with autism vary greatly. Some are not verbal, some are highly verbal. Some are boys, some are girls. Some have medical issues. Others don't. So I know two kids with autism look alike. That goes not just for their behavior, but their genes and the signals in their brain. So one way to approach this is grouping different types of autism together based on potential biological or behavioral signals so treatments and interventions can be more personalized. Another way to reduce the differences is to look at those with specific genetic mutations like those with Fragile X, Phelan McDermid, Rett syndrome. The end goal is to understand which treatments will work best for which people. It would be great if biomarkers predicted treatment response or measured treatment response in some way, and actually the FDA would love this. They're constantly being challenged by trying to figure out what is actually a change in behavior after treatment so they can understand what the improvement is. But that's probably a different thing altogether. For this talk, Dr. Jennifer foss whose career I've been following since she was a predoctoral fellow, gave a presentation as a new faculty member at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and she focused on how to use biomarkers to group people together. What makes a good biomarker? Well, first, it has to be objective. Right now, behavior assessments are subjective. People observe behavior, and they bring their own biases. It has to be reliable. It shouldn't vary from day to day, and you should be able to measure it. Things like a number, a pattern, a shape of a response. They also have to be feasible and scalable. Listen, you can't ask a kid with severe autism to sit still for 60 minutes. You also want to make sure that a $30 million imaging machine can be accessed by all clinicians, which it probably won't be. Now that you have a list of demands for a biomarker, things that it has to be, is this at all possible? What kind of biomarkers are out there? Well, you need lots of people to study biomarkers, which is why Dr. James McPartland at Yale got funded for a multi-site autism biomarkers consortium study, which means they'll recruit people across the United States and collect potential biomarkers. The list of things they're collecting are electroencephalography, or EEG, which is measuring brain activity through totally non-invasive measures. Many of you have children who've had an EEG. Basically, you wear a cap with dozens of little buttons that can detect electrical activity all over the brain. You can also tie in some of these electrical waveforms with specific neurochemicals that are being released at the time of different stimuli like visual stimuli. There's other brainwaves that are specific to words and sounds. Amazing. Don't ask me about the technology, it's been decades in the making. Another is eye tracking. So how people pay attention to different stimuli, including how they look at faces versus mouths or people versus objects. In a subgroup of people with autism with the mutation of chromosome 22, known as Phelan-McDermid syndrome, they have a reduction in the amplitude of electrical signals following a specific visual stimulus. Those without this mutation but autism also have a reduction but not as much. This should not be a substitute for a genetic test for Phelan-McDermid, but it may mean people with this reduced amplitude will benefit from treatments that also help those with Phelan-McDermid. You'll hear more about biomarkers in the future, of course, both in terms of diagnosis, but also subgrouping, and hopefully those that can be used to determine treatment response. Finally, this podcast cannot be complete without a comment about the environment. Sorry, I know you're probably sick of hearing about the environment, but there's so many good studies lately about the role of the environment in genetic environmental associations in autism. Well, this week there was another, and I'm not just saying that because I was an author on the study. It's been mentioned before. Air pollution has been associated with autism risk in multiple studies, almost 30 to be exact. Most of what's been published has shown a positive association with autism, more air pollution, more autism risk. But a group of researchers led by the University of California at San Francisco conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis. The thing about a systematic review is that we didn't just collect all the papers and say they were all the same. Some measured air pollution directly. Some measured air pollution via monitoring stations. Some measured it in real time. And some used computer modeling to estimate exposure. Some of them had low sample sizes. Some used educational records for an autism diagnosis. Some did a more fine-grained analysis. Some controlled for confounding variables or things that could affect outcome. Others did not. So we rated all of the studies based on these things. We also did a meta-analysis, which means we looked at the data on exposure for individual parts of air pollution and put the data together. Remember, air pollution is not one thing. It's mixtures. It's mixtures of little pieces of dust, of metals, of chemicals, of particles, of gases some or all of these things can be measured individually and quantified and also to induce some variability some countries have lots of air pollution others not so much right now if you're wondering how or why anyone can do a study on air pollution and meet all of these strict criteria stand in line these studies are so incredibly hard but remarkably the studies have been consistent in the end after all of this we found limited evidence of an association this does not mean no association. This means given all the variability in designs and all the outcomes in measurement and modeling, there was limited evidence. However, when it came to particulate air matter, which is just solid junk in the air in different sizes that you breathe in, the association was the strongest. And just to put in my normal plug for genetic environmental associations, Only one study had stratified by different genetic markers in the role of studying air pollution and autism. So there's that. I'll put a link to this publication in the asfpodcast.org description. Next week, we're going global. You'll be hearing from Andy Schur at Autism Speaks about the First Ladies event and how they can be the most important advocates for autism.